I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 4, 4, verse 27, to 6, verse 9. Somewhat longer reading this afternoon, but what ties this together is the focus on God's self-revelation, on His name, and that connects to our catechism reading this afternoon from Lord's Day 36 and 37. So, Exodus 4, verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regards to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the four men of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. 
You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abram, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now we read from Lord's Day 36 and 37. We're going to focus on what, the, what Scripture teaches about God's self-revelation in connection with the third commandment. And that's summarized and explained for us in Lord's Day 36 and 37, page 553. Here we read as follows, what is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. But may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth 
to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures? No. A lawful oath is a calling upon God, who alone knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever wondered what the point is of coming to church every Sunday? Maybe you haven't. Maybe you love coming here and can't imagine yourself doing anything else. But it could also be that you're still young, and you're at that age when you begin to think for yourself a little more, and maybe you've started wondering about church and about why we do things the way that we do. Maybe you've secretly wondered for yourself if what we do here is actually a man-made tradition. Now, when you're young, you're still trying to establish your personal identity. You want to say for yourself who you are, and that's fine if it comes down to questions of personal taste. But if you've actually thought this through, then you've probably already realized that your true identity doesn't lie in questions of personal taste. It goes much deeper than that. Identity is not primarily defined by your personal preferences. Advertisers would like you to think that that is the case. But that is not what identity is about at all. Identity is the sum total of who you are. And that is not something that you can work out completely on your own. Only God can tell you that. And that stands to reason, doesn't it? After all, he, he made you. He created you. So he, more than anyone else, knows who you are. And that's true for us all. Apart from God's self-revelation, we can never really know who we are. But now that He has revealed Himself to us, now we can finally know who we are. And that's also how we'll approach the third commandment this afternoon. Because God has revealed His name to us, we finally know who we are. And we'll pay attention to two points, that His self-revelation is a gracious call to use His name and a self-revelation as a gracious warning to use his name rightly. Now you may wonder, is this really true that you cannot know who you are apart from God's self-revelation? It's actually a truth that runs all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts the woman to eat from the forbidden fruit. And do you remember what he says? 
What does he say? He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. To be like God is fundamentally a question of identity. When Adam and Eve believed the serpent, when they acted on that belief, they didn't just sin against God. They also tried to establish their identity on something other than what God had revealed to them. God is the foundation and source of all meaning in life. And so when you turn away from him, you are left to work out the meaning of things on your own, including your sense of identity. And we live in an age when the consequences of that choice are on display for everybody to see. Our age is profoundly confused. We're now at a point where politicians, those who are to be responsible, those who are to rule over us, who've been entrusted with that responsibility, are not even able to give a clear answer as to what the difference is between a man and a woman. The Bible says those who rely on their own wisdom and insight apart from God are fools. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it's come to this. We shouldn't be surprised that our age is so confused. We shouldn't be surprised when it becomes even more confusing going forward. Scripture warns us about this. It has been for thousands of years. Proverbs 28 verse 26 says that whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 18 verse 2 says a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. And Proverbs 26 verse 12 asks, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So sin makes us fools. Sin warps our self-perception and therefore also our sense of identity. And it is fascinating to see how advertisers capitalize on this lost sense of identity. Think about how many products tie in to your sense of self. Isn't that the essence of good advertising, to connect your product to someone's sense of personal identity? to appeal to their sense of identity. Apple has known this for many years. Their most uh, successful slogan for many years was, think different. In other words, when you buy an Apple product, then you are identified or can identify yourself with a group of people who thinks different. You're not like everyone else. You're someone who thinks different. The best-known Nike slogan is, just do it. So if you wear Nike apparel... You're, you're not like the other people who make excuses. You're the person who goes and gets it done, whether that be on the sports field or in life. Or the Toyota slogan, let's go places. That was one of their slogans for a while. There's a sense that if you step into a Toyota product, then true freedom awaits. And so driving a Toyota is connected to this idea of having no limitations on yourself. You can go places, you can do things. And don't misunderstand the point here. The point is not that it is wrong to use these products in and of themselves. But when these products that you use begin to form an important part of how you regard yourself, you have departed from Scripture. It's a mindset. 
So this afternoon we read from the book of Exodus, and one of the fundamental themes of Exodus is this theme of identity. God reveals himself to people that he then claims as his own. He reveals his name to them. And as he does that, their identity begins to be shaped by this relationship that they have with God. And that identity clashes with what others say about them, in particular what the Pharaoh says about them. God says, you are my people. The Pharaoh says, you are my slaves. Those are competing claims of identity. And the interesting thing is that the people do not initially believe what, the, what God says about them. Their spirit is broken because of their harsh slavery, and they actually identify themselves with what Pharaoh says about them. The Pharaoh doesn't know who the Lord is, although he will soon find out. But if you think about it, the Israelites don't really know who the Lord is either. All they have is the stories of the past that they learned from their parents. They know enough about the Lord to worship when Moses brings the the message of their impending deliverance. But God's self-revelation has not made them regard themselves any differently. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Are we really that different? Has God's self-revelation made us regard ourselves differently? We live in a much later stage in the history of redemption, but has that history made any difference to us? Do we regard ourselves any differently now that God has revealed his name to us? Or is our sense of identity, our sense of self built on other things? Is it built on the products that we use or the experiences that we have or the lifestyle that we crave? Maybe our parents don't tell us who we are anymore, but who is telling us who we are? What has replaced their voice? Is it God and his self-revelation? Or is it something else? In our reading, God graciously comes to his people and he reveals himself And that begins by revealing his name. That comes out in particular in chapter 6. It says in 6 verse 2, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. Now you might wonder, how can that be? Because already eight verses into the Abraham story, Genesis 12, verse 8, we read that Abraham built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. So how can it be that the Lord now says that he did not reveal himself to Abraham by that name before? But the point is not that the Lord is revealing himself by that name for the first time. He has revealed it before, but he had not revealed what it meant. He had revealed himself as God Almighty. Right? It says that in verse, verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. In Hebrew, that is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. The English translation is God Almighty. And if you look at the places where that name is used, El Shaddai, if you, if you run a search on it and you look at the verses where that is used, it often, the context often points to God's provision. So God is a God who provides. And Abraham learned that over time as well. 
He learned that God's provision will always live up to his promises. So the patriarchs knew El Shaddai. And they also knew that sometimes he would call himself the Lord or Yahweh. But they didn't know much about that name. And that is why he explains in 4 verse 6 what that name is going to mean for them. He says to them, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that name again. The Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So when it says Lord in small caps, as most of you, I imagine, would know, uh, that is the English rendition of the Hebrew name Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am who I am. Or you can also translate it as I am who I will be. In other words, there's a, there's a consistency there, right? I am now who I will be in the future. I will not change. That is embodied in that name. I haven't changed. I will not change. You can rely on me. You are my people. I will be your God. I will give you a new identity. You're going to be my people. That will be your identity. Think about what a tremendous privilege it is to know the name of the Lord. By revealing his name, he shows that he wants to be near to his people. You don't give your name to just anyone. He wants to talk to them. He wants them to talk to him. He wants them to be named by his name. He wants them to belong to him. He wants them to experience the freedom that comes with knowing him. He wants them to experience what it means to know the Lord. Because you don't really know someone until you've had experience with that person. Isn't that right? Someone's name is their reputation. Their reputation is built up over time, over a series of consecutive experiences. And now he's telling his people he's going to make a name for himself among the Egyptians and among them by delivering them from slavery. He's, going, he's essentially saying to them, the Egyptians will know who I am and you will know who I am. But those are going to be two very different kinds of knowledge because you belong to me. They don't. He's going to reveal himself as their savior. And now think about this. It is not just the people of God in the past who became a part of his self-revelation. We have as well. These are not just stories of things that happened in the past that we take on board for information. That is not what Scripture is. The Scriptures become a part of us. They have a transformative effect on our lives. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So these stories shape our life story as well. They become a part of us. Through Scripture, God reveals Himself to us in our life. And when we believe, we are joined to Christ by faith. And then now we know the living God, the, the God of the book is not 
a God of your imagination. He's not a God who is dead. He lives, and through faith, He lives in us. And then, finally, we know who we are. We are God's people. He's revealed Himself to us. He's near to us, same God. We don't deserve God's self-revelation. We don't deserve to be named by his name. Neither did God's people in the past. In Exodus 4 verse 22, God says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God lived up to his name. God lived up to his reputation. He revealed himself as their deliverer, but the people did not respond in kind. In Hosea 11, verse 1 and 2, many centuries later, God looks back to this time, to this chapter. He looks back on the time when he first revealed himself to his people, and he says, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. He says, how can this be? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. God's people rejected him as their savior. And that brings out the question, how thorough is God's salvation? How much further is God willing to go with this, with revealing himself? Because it's true. God's people have never lived up to his self-revelation, and neither have we. But Jesus did. God said that the Israelites were his firstborn son. But you know what? They were never his natural sons. They were adopted. They came into the picture later on. They were given the title of son. But Christ, Christ has been around forever. Christ is the eternal, natural son of God. Christ lived the obedient life that God's people never have lived, either then or now. And you know what? He too was called out of Egypt. But... As a child, remember, out of Egypt I called my son. Herod wanted to murder him. His parents brought him to Egypt, and then he comes back, gets brought back later after Herod's death. And it says this was to fulfill Scripture. Out of Egypt I called my son, Jesus, the true Son of God. Unlike God's people, he was perfectly obedient. Of him God said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased And he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate self-revelation. God near to us in the ultimate sense of the word. God could not reveal himself any more clearly than he did in Jesus Christ. By ourselves, we can never be God's people. For us to be his people, we need more than just self-revelation. We need to respond to it with perfect love and obedience, and we've never done that. But Christ did. He did. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And when we confess our sins, when we put our faith and our trust in Him, then we finally know who we are. We are God's children. That is our identity. And that knowledge comes with a great responsibility. We are not only meant to receive the name of God, but to use it and use it well. 
For that very reason, Lord's Day 36 reminds us that we must use the name of holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. Because God has revealed His name to us, we finally know who we are, and that knowledge is not neutral. God's self-revelation is not a piece of information that He gives to us. It is a gracious call on our life to use His name, and it is gracious because we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. God's self-revelation is not something optional for us to tack onto an otherwise worldly existence. It is fundamental to understanding ourselves, but even more importantly, it is fundamental to knowing who God is. In your light, do we see light? Psalm 36, verse 9. God's light, the light of the knowledge of Him in Christ, illuminates everything else that there is to know about ourselves and the world around us. And for that very reason, we should make the utmost effort to come to both worship services on Sunday. Why would we do anything less? Why would we do anything less when church is where the gospel is explained and his self-revelation is made so clear to us? And we should make the utmost effort to study God's word, whether in preparing for club or reading the Bible at home, because God's self-revelation is a gracious call to use his name. It is to know the Lord and in knowing him to know ourselves. God's claim on our lives did not start when we believed. That was already laid on us at our baptism. That was when he said to us, you belong to me, you are my people. You belong to my people. But now that we have that claim on our lives, we need to respond in faith. The revelation of God's name comes with an obligation to respond in faith. That's so important also for the youth. It is good that you don't unconsciously go with what your parents told you. You need to make it your own. You need to respond to these baptismal promises in faith. So yes, don't just go with the flow because that's what your parents want. That is a bad reason to come to church. It's good to want to find your own identity, but you have to look for it in God's promises, and that's why you need to be here. Don't try to find it anywhere else. You will not find a true answer outside of God's self-revelation. Because God has given His name to us, we finally know who we are. We've seen that this self-revelation is a gracious call to use His name. Now let's see that His self-revelation is a gracious warning to use His name rightly. And it, it is all connected. It makes sense if you think about it. If you follow the, the train of thought God's self-revelation is foundational to our sense of self, therefore foundational to our perception of reality, therefore also foundational to our swearing. He calls us to use His name to swear our oaths for that very reason, because these things are connected. It's a great privilege, but it's also a responsibility. When we swear an oath, we testify to the reality of God's self-revelation. We testify that He is the one who punishes 
lying. And when we testify that we believe his self-revelation, that we walk with him, we also testify that what he says we take seriously. And for that reason, it is such a terrible sin to swear a false oath. Now that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, now that, that Jesus actually walked the earth, now that we have his very words recorded in Scripture, no one can say that they don't know who the Lord is anymore. And then if you know who the Lord is and swear a false oath anyway, that is a terrible sin. Because it means that instead of telling the truth as God is our judge, we would rather ignore a self-revelation in the moment and bend the situation to our own will. In Malachi 3 verse 5, swearing false oaths is listed as one of many sins that invoke God's swift and certain punishment. Another way in which we can misuse God's name is by using it flippantly. That is when you use the weight of God's name or his reputation to make a point in an ordinary conversation. Now, people find ways around that. I, I would imagine most of us know that, that blasphemy is sinful. But sometimes people try to have it both ways. They use something that sounds kind of like God's name so that they can borrow some of the weight of that name to make a point without actually transgressing the third commandment. They think as long as they don't say the real thing, they can get close. But there again, then if you do that, you're showing that your primary identity is not that you're part of God's people because if it were, then you would never misuse the name of Christ so crassly and then sing praises to Him in church on Sunday. In fact, Scripture says we need to do even better than that. It's not just about avoiding misusing the name of God, but, but all of our speech in general because our whole life has lived in the presence of His name we are to put away all corrupting talk. What is corrupting talk? Well, have you ever had a piece of bread and you bit into it and you realize too late that it's moldy? Or maybe with a piece of fruit? And you know how you get, get your mouth full of this sense of mold? And you want to spit it out? Well, that, that mold is to bread and to fruit what corrupting talk is to speech. That's what it's like to other people. In Ephesians 4 verse 29 it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And remember, grace is God's undeserved favor. God has graciously revealed himself to us. He didn't need to do that. He doesn't need to continue doing that, but he does it anyway. And because He's graciously revealed Himself to us, we are in turn meant to reflect that grace in how we speak. And that means, as the Catechism says, that we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence so that we might rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. Now, this is a difficult thing to do. It's very easy to fall into bad verbal habits Swearing, foul language, and so on. Easy to do when you work in the trades. If you work in construction, you're in a crew with other people who do the same thing. Very easy to become a bad influence on each other. Also easy to do, for example, if, um, if you've ever done restaurant work, worked in a kitchen, you're in close quarters in a hot environment, 
hot, humid environment, working under pressure with people that are physically close to you, and it's, it's easy to lose your temper and to use that kind of language, and, and sometimes that becomes a pattern, and you become a bad influence on each other, and it is hard to undo that pattern of speech. Sometimes you can still struggle with it years later. So what do you do then? Do you just keep trying to improve, or what do you do? Well, you think back to God's self-revelation. When you swear, you're in that moment forgetting God's self-revelation, and that is sin. But the grace is that His self-revelation continues. His self-revelation is a gracious warning to use His name rightly, and the command to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That command comes in a particular context. There's the command, but it's surrounded by grace. The context is being renewed. Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24 says, You are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, that's the core of the gospel, that Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by His Spirit. God's self-revelation did not end with the Israelites. It did not end at our conversion. He continues to renew us. Even when we struggle with the language that comes out of our mouths and we try so hard to change and we find it so difficult, He continues to renew us. He continues to cleanse us. And for that very reason, we are to return, turn to Him in repentance and continue to receive His grace. Only then can we know who we really are. As we grow in our faith, we learn more and more to live in the light of God's self-revelation in Christ that will continue our whole life until the day that Christ calls us to Himself. And what happens after that? Revelation 3, verse 12, He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And, listen to this, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And then his self-revelation will never end. So let us learn to rightly confess his name. For he is our God. We are his people. That is who we are. Amen.